Hello there. This is the box office show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be talking about the Oscar-nominated film Promising Young Woman. And in preparation for the Oscars next Sunday, we will be doing our predictions for who will win. Okay, now I hope you're going to be proud of me, Ryan, because I finally did it. I finally did yoga. Oh, you did? I did. That's incredible. I know, I did it once. What's her name? What is it? Uh, Adrienne. Adrienne. Yoga with Adrienne. There you go. Yeah. How did you feel? I felt good. Uh, Spencer was doing his back yoga, and I was like, you know what? I waited long enough. I'm going to join with him. So I I did some of his back yoga with him. I didn't need it as much because my back has been feeling better ever since i started working out but definitely felt even better after highly recommend yoga with adrian well that is fantastic i'm glad you were finally able to get there and you're gonna keep with it yes yes i demand an update next week during our oscar show which did you know dylan our very first show back when we were a radio show on wnsc university Mm -hmm. of central florida orlando caster fm and when it we was, were called the box office breakdown, it was an Oscars prediction show. For last year, right? Or for two years ago. Two years ago, yeah. Wow. It's been a long time. It has. We haven't had, I mean, too many shows, though. Because we've had the summer breaks, then the, the pandemic hiatus breaks. pandemic, yeah. Yeah, quite a few hiatuses. But mm-hmm. we're coming back around doing an Oscar prediction show. But first... We're going to talk about some news. We're going to keep it light today. We're going to mm-hmm. talk about the trailer for the new Marvel movie, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings. Did you watch it, Dylan? I did. It looked good. It looked fun. I liked the martial arts. It seemed like it was a, a lot inspired by some of the early 2000s movies coming out of China, like uh, House of Flying Daggers and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, those kinds of martial arts movies where they're using wires a lot and things like that. And a little bit of Bruce Lee kind of martial arts coming in just a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I That was probably the highlight of watching the trailer. And there's also a couple amazing shots in there. Like one when they were silhouetted against the purple like advertisement like in, mm-hmm. in the city. That looked really interesting. And I also love Aquafina, As you may remember from one of our earlier shows the best movies of 2019 i loved her in the farewell that was a long time ago so i know but i love her so seeing her in anything is going to be incredible so i'm glad she's in it and i'm excited for this to come out very much looking forward to it also in the news cycle we learned that george miller's mad max fury road prequel mad max or is it just fear i think it's mad max fury rosa is the name is finally going to start filming with anya taylor joy as the titular character, Furiosa. Also joining the cast is Yaya Abdul-Mateen II and Chris Hemsworth. They are returning to Australia to film. I don't remember where they filmed Fury Road, but I know they couldn't film it in Australia because there had been a huge uh, 
a huge downpour of rain. And so the desert where they were going to film became lush and very green and full of grass. So they couldn't film there. But this year, or the year that they're filming, it is going to be the biggest production ever done in Australia. And that's because of a lot of tax breaks that Australia was giving and how much they were pushing for George Miller to come back and film another Mad Max there. And so George Miller is returning and it's going to be huge, huge. As it should be. It should be incredible. It's been, what, six years now since six Fury years. Road came out? So it's been a long time coming that we're finally getting another Mad Max project. Indeed. So definitely excited about that as well. Now for our box office breakdown for the weekend of April 16th to the 18th, nothing new really came out. So Godzilla vs. Kong, still on top, had $7.8 million, which... I think it was around the range that we had put it at. It didn't have as significant a drop this week mm -hmm. as it did last week. So good for that film to still stay around and be the top apex predator of the Indeed. box office. Coming in second is the Bob Odenkirk action movie Nobody with $2.5 million. That's only a 5% drop from last weekend, which is this late in the game, a, a fair hold. For I mean, that's yeah, week an, to week, an incredible yeah. hold, which we've seen a lot more of in the pandemic era as again not too many new releases come out so we get in their third to fourth weekend at the box office they seem to get really good holds and that was the case for the unholy which also had a really strong one it got two million this week and it got like two point what three or four million last week so another good hold mm -hmm. another good hold right in the last dragon now at 1.9 million just under the unholy which is still hanging on it's been in the in the box office for a long time now Fairly long time, a couple months, is it? Yeah, and March. Tom and Jerry has lingered even longer. It's back in the top five with 1.1 million. It beat out Voyagers, which in its second weekend has dropped below the 1 million mark. It only got 780,000 this week. Not great. Burned and crashed. Yeah. It's gone. Poor Colin Farrell. Next week, we have a big new release from Warner Brothers, so it will also be on HBO Max. But it will be in theaters. We have Mortal Kombat, April 23rd. Dylan, what do you feel about this? It's rated R. And, of course, we have the HBO Max effect. So where do you think this will get for its opening? I mean, Godzilla vs. Kong is sort of a good thing to look at because it's also a Warner Bros. property that released in theaters and on HBO Max. And it still made a buttload of money. And like Mortal Kombat, it has a dedicated following. So Mortal Kombat can easily uh, get up to close where Godzilla vs. Kong hit. The first time i think it can have a very strong hold as well after i'm gonna predict for mortal kombat between 25 and 30 million really yes first opening week i got yes that is domestic pretty high i'm gonna go with a lot more measured of an approach there i think it'll get 12 to 15 million I think it will break double digits for the reasons you said. There is definitely a huge following mm -hmm. for Mortal Kombat and for this movie. And the action in it, I mean, if we've seen the trailers there, it does look good. We're in sort of a renaissance for combat choreography. So mm -hmm. it is appealing to watch that in theater. So I do think it'll attract a lot of people. But I think it's not as big a draw as Godzilla versus Kong. I think that everyone knows like okay big cgi monsters that looks really good on the big screen mm -hmm. i don't think the draw is 
as present with Mortal Kombat for that particular reason. So seeing it in theaters versus just on HBO Max. And again, the R rating, it's hard to tell how much that'll have an effect now in the COVID era. But I also think that may dampen what it'll pull versus Godzilla vs. Kong. Could be a family affair. Um, Teens could just go see it by themselves. So I think it will break double digits, but 12 mil to 15 mil, somewhere in that range, I think, is where it'll land. Mm-hmm. And of course, with no other big openings this weekend, Godzilla vs. Kong is most certainly going to stay or going to take second right underneath Mortal Kombat. It's probably going to drop, or it's definitely going to drop to 7.8 million, but I'm going to guess probably around 5, 5 million. I think that's a good modest estimation. Yeah, I think 4.5 mil, 5-ish mil, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Would be a good hold for it. All right, now we are moving into our review for Promising Young Woman, which is the directorial debut of Emerald Fennel, who also was the screenwriter for it, and it stars Carrie Mulligan, mm-hmm. who's nominated for the best lead best lead actress. We have Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, Alfred Molina, Laverne Cox, and a few more in this star-studded cast, really. And the premise content warning for this because it is a very heavy premise it is that cassie she goes to a club every weekend and pretends to be drunk so that supposed nice guys who come up to her and try to get her home safely but they actually bring her to their own place she sort of lays the trap for them so she continues to act drunk and then when they try to take advantage and cross the line of consent she reveals it's a ruse, humiliates them for doing what they're doing, shows how horrible it is. And the reason she does this every weekend is because her childhood friend, Nina, while in med school, was raped and justice never came. And so the trauma really bore down on Nina, resulting in, they never explicitly say it, but it's heavily implied that she did take her own life. Mm-hmm. So that is the premise, and it does seem dark, but the tone of the film isn't that dark, and certainly not all the time. It definitely has the elements of black comedy to it, but it fully becomes a romantic comedy at one point, mm-hmm. and also goes to a revenge thriller fantasy, and then other times it does lean into that premise and becomes a full trauma drama, so it is very versatile. And it pivots between those tones a lot. I think it does so very deftly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also has the cinematography is an interesting choice as well because it isn't grim dark. There's this candy colored pop bright aesthetic. Neon. Yeah, bright mm-hmm. neon, pastel colors all throughout it. So it's an interesting approach to a film with this subject matter. But what did you think, Dylan? What are your first impressions on this? Well, on the tone, uh, I agree with you that it does shift a lot, but I think that is trying to keep in the idea of staying in Cassie's mindset. So as you're watching the movie and as it's shifting tones, it's really following what she's perceiving the world, and that's why it's really creating that sort of first-person perspective for her. And you're learning things as she's learning them. You're learning things a little bit behind her at first because you don't know why she does what she does. You don't know what exactly she does. And then as soon as you catch up to her, you're learning things along with her. So I think in writing-wise, I think that really works well. I think the casting is great for a lot of the male characters. All the the 
creepy men. Uh, Emerald Fennel said that she explicitly cast actors who were known for being kind of funny guys like Bo Burnham and uh, Adam Brody and Max Greenfield all, and Chris Lowell uh, and Christopher Misplays. All these people who are known for being funny guys and being lighthearted and being like actually good guys and we should cast them so that you're not thinking, oh, it's the creepy guy who does these things. It's It's the person who seems normal. You know, it can be anybody. So I think the casting is done really well. I think there's a lot of good plot twists. Uh, spoiler warning, of course. Uh, Bo Burnham, it turns out that even though he seems like a nice guy the whole time, he's dating Cassie, it seems like it's going well. It turns out that he was involved or he was uh, present when Cassie's friend was raped so many years ago and he was he took part in filming it and he was present. He didn't do anything to stop it. So it turns out he's actually messed up as well and that really impacts Cassie. Originally, she's at this point, the movie going to give up her vendetta against what's his name, Al Monroe. Yeah, Al Monroe, who's the real antagonist. She he, she tries to like give up her vendetta, move on, settle down her relationship with Bo Burnham, and then she finds his, or she's given a tape, and she finds that Bo Burnham's on the tape watching her friend get raped, and that really solidifies her path to the end of the movie. What did you think of the climax? Right before we get to the climax, I did want to backpedal a bit here and talk about that relationship with Bo Burnham because like you mentioned they're phenomenal casting and having these people who do seem like nice guys and in other roles that we have seen them in they have been mm -hmm. these nice guys or at least in that awkward charming phase they don't seem threatening and then we see each of them end up being total schmucks and the chief of them being Bo Burnham who is also the one that we wanted to like the most mm -hmm. and we see it's an interesting journey we have of pairing the romantic comedy side of her relationship with Wilburnham with that vendetta with her acts of retribution that she's trying to carry out against the people who were in some way related to what happened to Nina and somehow prevented the uh, Al being brought to justice so early on we see them start their sort of relationship and she's somewhat resistant but does end up taking a liking to him and then we see it was in act two right the tally mark two yeah of the vengeance after that is when we see she's out late at night doing her ritual and she did that by blowing off a date she had with Bobernum. and then because his schedule was freed up he went there to the club and so he sees her there and she's like oh god i ruined this um and we see she tries to repair that later on, which leads us into the pharmacy trip montage. Mm -hmm. where we have Paris Hilton's song playing over it, which was the absolute high point of the movie <laughs> for me. I feel like it's impossible not to enjoy yourself while watching that. I've seen this film twice, and both times, that entire sequence, I was smiling ear to ear the whole way through. It it's was, just fun. It's a lot of fun. It was, it's cute. It was, it's well shot. Yeah, Very it was well made me feel so good inside. And like you said, at this point, she has tried, she's accepted in a way and tried to move on from her quest for vengeance. That's mm -hmm. what that beginning portion of the film was. It was dedicated to the revenge thriller fantasy. And then now she's trying to move on, repair her life, and be fully involved in this relationship. And then, bam, the reveal which I didn't see coming. No, really me should either. Have. But yeah, I was taken completely 
by surprise when that happened. And uh, and you just tell you could tell immediately when that happens. You knew she was about to fall right back into her quest, her vengeance. And so, mm-hmm. I also wanted to mention just the first three before we get to the climax, which is her finale. You know, targeting Al Monroe. But like I said, she tries mm-hmm. to target other people who were in some way responsible for the aftermath of what happened to Nina, of no justice being brought, which of course meant that Nina didn't have any support. She was drowning in trauma, and that led to her and Cassie both dropping out from med school. So the first act of vengeance she tries to bring is against Allison's Bree, Allison Bree's character. I mm-hmm. forget the name. I think Me it was too. Madison, actually. But I think you're right. Yeah, so I she, should know this. I saw this two days ago. I should know. <laughs> so she was uh, one of the friends. They were also in med, med school. And each of those like acts of retribution, like the person that she's trying to bring them to for the first three, each of them embody a response that society tends to have towards victims of sexual assault or people who are trying to you know, make these accusations, say, like, here's what happened. So with Madison, she's sort of embodying the sexist gendered expectations of, well, why were you drinking? And other victim blaming things like that or making excuses like, oh, he was just a kid. We were all young back then. We were having fun. Oh, why weren't you more prepared? Why are you so promiscuous? Maybe if you didn't Mm -hmm. have that reputation, then people wouldn't disbelieve you when you come out with something like that. So that was what she did that was her role in what happened to nina in the second one it was sort of the university's response and how they, our institutions will typically try to sweep the accusations under the rug because they don't want bad publicity and they're like oh just keep it hush hush mm-hmm. or they'll defer to the man's word and say look we have to give them the benefit of the doubt we can't support you in this or they don't go the full way of opening up an investigation or providing resources or support which obviously we saw with nina since she had to drop out and then afterwards committed suicide because you didn't have that support go ahead yeah and that has a lot to do with the film the 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 title of the film because a lot of these institutions will refer to the accused as you know a promising young man and that there seems to be no evidence to support that what he did happened and things like that. And so that's that kind of leads to the title promising young woman about the uh, accusers who are also promising young individuals who should not be neglected. Exactly. I'm, I love that you brought up that point because that's mm-hmm. also the thing of, oh, they were kids. Oh, look at the life they have ahead of them. Yeah. Also, what about the victims mm-hmm. who are also kids and also have this life ahead of them? And we get to see in a film like this, the toll that it takes on both the victims and then those associated with the victims, how it has derailed really Cassie's life. And she's no longer going to med school for years now. I think like seven years she's been out of it. She's just been working at this coffee place. She's living at home with her parents, not moving out despite them wanting her to. She doesn't take the job offer that Laverne Cox's character talks to her about. Mm. Like she's stuck in place because she's so just caught up in this quest for revenge and we see like you said that idea of the promising young man flipped on its head we see the ways that it does really harmfully impact the lives of the victims and those who are close to them 
Uh, and yeah, you're right. I think that like a couple years ago is when that that big case where it was on a college campus and the judge sentenced to three months, I think, something ridiculous mm-hmm. like that. And that was the whole shtick was always a promising young man. We can't ruin his life over this. Well, that originally started with Brock Turner, as they originally called him the promising young man. Right. He was, that was like the first big national case of like, we should believe the accusers, not not the accused. And so that whole thing happened. And he was a, like the first person to really publicly be called like promising young man. Right. Yeah. And continuing with where we're going. So that third act or the third person who was involved, the third person she tries to bring retribution to is the character played by Alfred Molina. He was a defense lawyer. Mm -hmm. So he is someone who defends the accused and gets them off and sometimes using means by like trying to basically harass the accusers to -hmm. drop it or fishing through their social media to find compromising photos or things that'll make the jury hostile to them. So that was a really interesting one because my first viewing, I was confused going through it because yeah. I didn't know. I thought the very first thing she did, like when she sets up, because she does like psychological tor- torture. Mm-hmm. She's not out like slicing and dicing these people as typical revenge killers are. She misleads Allison Bree's character to think that because she woke up, she got really drunk, then put her in the hotel room with some guy and so she's giving the implication to her that oh something happened without my consent Mm -hmm. so making her now inhabit the perspective of oh no i don't know what happened and so that i wasn't aware of the first time like i was still questioning if she actually arranged for her to be raped yeah, that's because they don't explain it until later in the movie with Madison exactly. returns. So you also had that impression because I was wondering. If yeah, I was of course. Just, if I because they don't it. explain it, like it's only natural yeah. to think that way, which yeah, so, I think is the intention is that it's unexplained, and so you think, oh, she's morally like ambiguous throughout this whole movie until you get to that point later. And like the first thing is in the second movie where it seems like she took the dean's daughter to the same place where her friend was raped. Right, to, to make it seem like that room. she yeah, is the same room and so you're thinking oh she's really going all in she's committing to these terrible acts to do full revenge rather than justice and then you learn slowly and slowly like oh she's not actually doing terrible things it's more psychological torture rather than actual physical harm right yeah okay i'm glad that you also had that mindset going in because in the beginning i was like wow this is crazy she's going mm-hmm. really hardcore and i was yeah. like i'm not I mean, you can't sympathize and be like, yes, this is a good thing to do. It's a terrible thing to do. But I was like, okay, we're going to go with this. And she's like going off the rails and is really mm-hmm. putting the hurt on these people. I'm engaged. I mean, it was certainly an interesting. I was like, yeah, go, choice. just go yeah. all out. Like, it's a movie. I want to see you go all out, see what happens. For sure. So, yeah, that was interesting because initially with the, the first one, I was like, I don't know if I can sympathize with this, but I'm very intrigued. And the second one, when we see that she doesn't actually go through with it i'm like okay that's interesting Mm -hmm. so there's some limits some lines she's not going to cross and then the third one when she goes to the defense lawyer and she goes in there it's interesting because he is someone who is repentant for his Mm -hmm. role in what happened with nina so she goes in and is like oh do you remember 
this person or she described some of the case and he was like yes i do that was nina wasn't it and mm -hmm. it takes her by surprise because the first two people didn't remember at all or were completely unremorseful mm -hmm. and so with him he is and he's clearly affected he's on a sabbatical now because he had a quote meltdown because he realized what a terrible thing it is that he's doing and that he's a part of and so she doesn't do any act of retribution to him and actually says i forgive you mm -hmm. which the very first time i watched it when i was still in that mindset of i don't know if she's like actually had that one character raped and now she's getting affected by what he's saying and gives forgiveness and at that point i was like oh, i don't understand it but the second time knowing that she doesn't actually go through with all of that it made more sense to me that this does become a turning point for her that starts moving her towards that acceptance and towards okay i'm gonna try to move on with my life and go into this relationship with bo burnham and try to heal um, because she for seven years and we find out in the next scene when she talks with nina's mother she mm -hmm. blames herself in a way she also thinks that she is responsible for nina's for what happened to her and then also i guess for her death since she dropped out of med school to try and help her but obviously it didn't succeed so she's been living with this guilt which certainly isn't deserved but i mean that's what she feels and this is the first time that she's seeing that somebody else years afterwards is also as emotionally impacted by mm -hmm. what happened to nina and their role in it and so she's able to empathize with him in that way and that's why it was such a powerful turning point for her which again in the first viewing i had i didn't understand that but the second time i was like oh my god that's mm -hmm. incredible the writing on this really is off the charts and no wonder she's nominated for the best original screenplay yeah and i think the big lesson in the movie is forgiveness and learning when forgiveness works and when it doesn't and so what emerald fennel is trying to show the audience is that the only time that forgiveness is given is when the person that is being forgiven admits to their wrongdoing and like faces it is the whole movie you see all these characters who are avoiding blame and who are avoiding uh accountability accountability and they aren't being forgiven they're being judged and they're being revenged upon in a way but you get to alfred molina's character and he's fully repentant he's fully remorseful he admits completely right out immediately to his wrongdoing he even goes farther than that and says like you know i can't sleep i, I just keep thinking about it, of the horrible horrible things that i've done and i can't stop thinking about it and that sort of breaks her she's like oh i never thought i would encounter a person who was actually remorseful i never thought i would encounter someone who was as regretful of this as as i am and that comes full circle at the end which we'll get to without for Melina's character but it's just so interesting to see how she sees herself in him in a way yes exactly yeah and the one line that he had of oh, I guess she asked him first and was like do you oh he said have you come here to hurt me and she goes do you want me to hurt you something like that which really mm -hmm. encapsulated again like he was trying to invite the retribution he was the only one who wanted that to happen because mm -hmm. he was fully accepting accountability for what happened in his role in it and like you said yeah that that is the gateway to what allows her to forgive him and do so genuinely 
instead of acting any more punishment on him as she did with everyone else who was involved. Mm -hmm. She had very interesting writing that we had there. And it all led up to the conclusion of the film, which I said controversial. I don't know if it actually is controversial. Maybe it is. It's certainly bold. And so that's why I think that there's a lot of divide Mm -hmm. over it. Um, But what happens in the end is after seeing that tape, which, ooh, another piece of good writing is the setup of having Alison Brie's character fall away after the very first act of retribution. And then when she literally arrives on Cassie's doorstep to Mm -hmm. try to get confirmation of, hey, I wasn't actually taken advantage of, right? And Cassie at this point is now happy she's moved on. And so we see she's now being remorseful and like, oh, that was a terrible thing I did, misleading you to think that this happened to you. So I'm sorry about that. Didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And then then that allows Alison Breed to hand over the tape that she had on an old phone. And that sends Cassie spiraling. And so she wants to know where the bachelor party is of Al since he's getting married. Um, And she goes there in a nurse outfit because she's acting like she's the stripper who gets called to bachelor parties. Mm -hmm. And she drugs everyone at the party so she can take Al upstairs, ties him to the bed, pulls out the scalpel. And then we finally get the confrontation between them where we see he's also in this sort of phase of the nice guy. He's like, you know, don't actually do anything because I love my wife, this, this, and that. So Mm -hmm. we're seeing again this facade of, oh, he's actually a good guy. But then we know, of course, what he's done. And so Cassie is sort of relishing in his fear building up as he recognizes that she's come to make him pay. And she calls herself Nina Fisher. And then he finally realizes, oh, wait, this is the friend. And one of the interesting lines that came in here Probably my favorite of the whole movie is, of course, as he's trying to say, no, don't hurt me. He goes, it's every guy's worst nightmare getting accused like that. And she says, can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? And so it's a perfect encapsulation of, again, what all the nice guys from earlier in the film, how they get so humiliated and defensive when they find out, oh, she isn't drunk. And she just has to watch their watch them squirm and come to terms with the fact that they are despicable people who parade themselves as decent people. Um, So she here is finally ready to take violence as a means of punishment instead of just psychological torture. So she's going to carve Nina's name into his body. And then I'm not sure if she had anything else planned after that. I'm sure she did, but that's what we see doing and she climbs on top of him he happens to break free from one of the handcuffs and we see in an excruciating long take of almost two minutes i think somewhere around there Mm -hmm. felt like forever of him smothering her her fighting through it the whole way but she's unable to get out of it and al kills her which is a very bold choice. And I'm wondering what Emerald Fennel is trying to say by having that be 
the climax of the film because the very end we do we do get that justice that comes to Al because she planted the or she sent the tape to Alfred Molina and is like hey in case of my disappearance bring this to the police and so we see at the wedding that's what happened the cops come and take Al away presumably they're going to get the mofo Joe that ran away as well so we do end on a high note right of okay everything I guess technically worked out but Nina is dead and now Cassie is dead so what do you feel that she was trying to say by having this dual ending okay so I would like to say that uh, I've seen a couple interviews with Emerald Fennel, and I know that the original ending was a little bit more bold uh, it was going to end with her dying and then they burn the body and then that's it and that was going to be the original ending but she decided to have that sort of uplifting uh, finally get the revenge on the the bad guy sort of ending where they go to jail and it's certainly implied that Bo Burnham will most likely lose his job once it comes out that he was involved in recording Nina's rape and all that and whatnot. But I know that what she said was when when Carrie Mulga- when Cassie goes to the bachelor party and she goes up into the room with Al Monroe. At the end of the day, it's two individuals in a room and Al Monroe is the stronger individual. Even though we've watched this whole movie, Cassie's, you know, confident and powerful and intimidating. When you're in that room, Al Monroe is just the stronger person, which is just unfortunately how most of these situations play out, you know. Even though some people can say self-defense, I mean, he still went out of his way to not let up. And he got on top of her and he did not let up which is awful. And she died. And then they burned her body to try and cover it up, which is very, very sad. But she finally gets her revenge. That whole come around where she sends all the information to Alfred Molina, which I think is partly because she trusts him a lot. She trusts him to carry out that sort of retribution. I think it's also to give him even more forgiveness that he gets to be the one that put the final nail in the coffin and that he maybe he can finally sleep at night knowing that he helped put Al Monroe away finally. Right. Sort of the last measure of absolution for him. And then again, right. It is her ultimate wish. Her final act of vengeance does come to fruition, but at what cost she's dead. So again, I don't know what was she Emerald Fennel trying to say with that. And I do think that's an interesting point you bring up of, I mean, yeah, that's probably the realistic mm-hmm. way that it would go down as like that's sort of the subversion of the fantasy part of the revenge thriller. Have we seen all her plans really go off without a hitch? I mean, they were perfectly executed. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I mean, that can't happen all the time. And like you said, the sad reality is in most cases, if it's a one-on-one situation, I mean, just the, physical difference in strength is sometimes going to be too much to overcome and that's depressing mm-hmm. and horrible and i think yeah maybe that's what emerald tunnel was trying to showcase there the real way this would go down is probably with that mm-hmm. um, but then also in terms of just the deeper meanings and the themes of the film i'm wondering if that also speaks to the 
theme of forgiveness that you brought up. We certainly see that throughout the film. Cassie, again, is damaging herself with this vendetta, and it ends up in her self-destruction. Right? If she, she had the tape, and we know that the tape ended up having the police arrest out. So she could have, once she had that tape, just gone to police and gotten the retribution done without endangering herself. But mm-hmm. she chose to say, all right, I'm going to go there and carve the name. I mean, I'm going to make him squirm and come to terms with what he did. I want to be there to see that and to inflict that on him. And so I'm wondering if that's also part of the deeper meaning behind having that of showing yeah, her inability to just not go as far as she did is what ended up being her demise. And if that speaks to a broader idea of unfair as it is, it may be necessary for victims and then those close to the victims to have to just try to repair themselves and heal Mm -hmm. and live out the promise of their lives without fully trying to, to meet out the justice that deservedly the accused should have right they should be put away and we would want justice to come to them but sometimes that doesn't always happen and tough as it is you see maybe in this case where if you get so involved in trying to enact that and bring that on yourselves not that i mean most people are doing that but that's right the fantasy of oh i can take this in my own hands and do it is she saying that maybe that isn't the best case? Like, if people could go out and take it into their own hands, is that the best choice? It seems like this is saying maybe not. Maybe at a certain point, coming to terms with the fact that there is that injustice and accepting that and just trying to heal yourself and move on. Like, that's sort of the conversation that Cassie had with Nina's mother. So, yeah, it is an interesting and thought provoking ending. So certainly another mm-hmm. great writing choice that Emerald Fennell made. Certainly very impactful when you see it on film. Just, yeah, something I was very curious about and wanted to get your opinions on. So I think looking at it from an even broader standpoint, when you're writing a movie where a character is, is spending the whole time trying to get justice for a wrongdoing, at the end of the movie, you know, either they get that justice or they don't, but they sort of come to terms with what the reality is and they sort of accept things and they can move on. But when you have a movie where it's about revenge, which is what this is, it's that determination that becomes the folly of the character. It's their foil. It's what sort of leads them down the path to doing whatever it takes to get their revenge. And she's willing to go as far as she needs to. When she gets that phone, she has that choice between going to the bachelor party and getting revenge or just turning over the phone and potentially getting justice. And she is more than willing and very satisfied in getting that revenge on him. She wants the feeling of getting that revenge. After everything that she's been put through and everything that she's done, this is what she wants. She wants to get that revenge. And so ending it with her dying is sort of her last revenge. I mean, he gets blamed for that murder, which is 10 times more of a a charge uh, legally than um, sexual assault from probably 10 years prior. 
which he still would be charged for. He's because now he's going to be charged for both. So part of it is that she's getting that ultimate revenge that she's going even farther than justice for Nina. It's revenge to make sure that he pays even more than he would normally. He pays even more for getting away with it for so long. Because they didn't get justice when it first happened. So she's beyond justice now. Part of it is a distrust in the system too. You know, they went through this process. She went through the university with Nina and he got away with it. And so now she wants that revenge. She's tired of trying to get justice because justice didn't work the first time. Now she's at the point of revenge. Right. But yeah, unfortunately, it did end up erasing any of the promise she had remaining in her life, Mm -hmm. which is, yeah, horribly unfortunate. But again, a very intriguing movie, very thought-provoking. Any final thoughts that you have on this? Nothing particularly, you? Yeah, I just wanted to, because again, I really did, the first time we watched it, it was in Barry's class at the beginning of the year, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Even though, again, in the very beginning, I was thinking, again, it was difficult to sympathize with Cassie herself, but Carrie Mulligan's performance was incredible. She's one of the people who, on screen, they just pop. They're so engaging, mm-hmm. which I'm also thinking about because I saw Scarface and Carlito's Way earlier. So Al Pacino is also one of those people who they're just mesmerizing on screen mm-hmm. anytime they are on screen. So I was in love with her performance and the general premise and the way that it was executed. Again, that very bold ending. Um, but I did think that it wasn't flawless, like the tone, which we talked about how she pivots between the tone a lot. There's some places where I felt it didn't always work. And one of those was the Joe and Al scene in the morning after Mm Cassie gets killed. It felt over the top, like really ridiculous for something so horrific to have come just before it. I think she was, I think Emerald Fennel was trying to like come back from that whole horrible thing you just witnessed and try and lead back into sort of a more campy tone to build up to the end where you have that great finale with her sending the messages to Bo Burnham uh, after the fact. I think she's just trying to maybe not end on such a a bad tone because it's truly horrific to watch when you're watching it. Right. Yeah, and I can understand that, but I think perhaps the very end with those perfectly time-scheduled messages Mm -hmm. are the most perfect arrivals i've ever seen her plan went off without a hitch i know it was amazing the level of timing that cassie has impeccable even from beyond the grave i mean i mean granted she knows when the future when the wedding is and she knows when the reception is so she can time it out that way i think it's just movie coincidence like knock on the door right when you need it to be or like turn on the radio right when you need to turn it on sort of thing with the police coming i mean yeah for sure you can't really hold it against it but yeah, with that tone thing, I feel like I can see if that was the intention, but I would have liked to have sit more with just the horror of what we saw and then arrive in the, oh, the happy feeling at the end when the upbeat mm-hmm. pop music comes in and we get the winky face. Like, I would have liked, okay, bring back the camp then, not right afterwards, because I felt it it uh, undercut, which came before it. Mm-hmm. But overall, I really... I absolutely love this film. Mm-hmm. And I also think that it's a really important depiction and exploration of 
again, the impacts that sexual assault can have on those who are close to the victim, which is something that I haven't considered much because we Mm -hmm. rightfully so see a lot of um, perspectives who are from the victim, but seeing the toll that it can take on those who are close to the victim. I mean, again, childhood friends and they were in med school together. I mean, that's two full decades of being so integral to each other's lives. And then we see how it pained Cassie once she lost Nina. So I thought that was a very interesting angle as well that this film took. So out of five tally marks, how many would you give it, Dylan? The full five. I'd give it all. Full five? Yes. That's what I'm saying. I'm also giving it a full five. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. I thought even even in the beginning when I thought it was a little weak and it was like surprising, like, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I'm kind of disappointed. It slowly built up to what I thought it was going to be and then it exceeded that even more. It just blew my mind. But I loved it. Fantastic. For real. I thought it was beautiful, amazing. If that's the debut for Emerald Fennel, I am excited to see where she goes from here. Mm-hmm. And Carrie Mulligan, Oscar nominated for lead actress. I am spoiling my predictions a bit here, but I hope she wins because it was fantastic. I also hope she wins. I'm on your side. I agree with you, (laughs) but we'll get there. Speaking of Oscar nominations, we're going to go through one by one, starting from the smaller categories and working our way up to the big five. So at the bottom of our list, which is not necessarily in no way is it in any order of importance, but at the bottom of our list, how we ordered it is best international feature film. The Vegas odds have another round from Denmark, Thomas Vinterberg, as being the supposed winner. What do you think is going to win, Ryan? I haven't seen any of these films, but you saw another round, didn't you? That is the only one I did see, and I would have to agree with the Vegas odds that another round is fantastic, and I think it will win. I'm going to trust Vegas odds, you, and the one advertisement panel that I saw on Amazon Prime of it, mm-hmm. where it was like the drunk dude, or he had the beer around. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll go with that one. But again, haven't seen any of them, so not an informed guess, but that's what I'm going with. Alright, and best live action short film, I have seen none of these. I know what none of them are about, so it's anyone's game, if you ask me. Okay, so we have Feeling Through, The Letter Room, The Present, the two strangers, or wait, two distant strangers, and White Eye. Based on the names alone, what would you think would win? Based on the names alone, I'm going to go with two distant strangers. Seems po- sounds think, poetic. Yeah, I also think two distant strangers seems like the one that would win. Mm-hmm. But I also think White Eye is sounds the cool. best title. Yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds coolest. So. We'll see. I want that one to win, but I would if I would, had to guess which I think would win. Two Distant Strangers does feel like the Oscar mm-hmm. winner. Now, have you seen any of the best animated short films? Unfortunately not. Last year, I was able to catch all the short film things, but this mm-hmm. time, with COVID and stuff, not able to. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you been able to catch any of them? I have missed most of them, but I have seen If Anything Happens, I Love You on Netflix, which is a short film um spoilers if if i I guess i shouldn't spoil if you haven't seen it but you should watch it uh it's very poetic it's very well done and vegas oz says that will win i agree i think it is good enough to even beat the pixar short burrow which i haven't seen but it's pixar you know 
Yeah, that's insane. I do remember seeing the advertising panels for Burrow on Disney+. Mm-hmm. Plus, and I I do think remember thinking, oh, snap, there's the Oscar winner for the animated thing. But <laughs> you're saying Netflix's If Anything Happens, I Love You will overtake it. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah, can't speak to it. I guess I could try to watch those two before next week and see. But yeah, it seems like if Vegas odds and you are saying that this does surpass Pixar, what would be then? I'll have to throw my hat in that bin as well. We have Best Visual Effects. We have Love and Monsters, The Midnight Sky, Mulan, The One and Only Ivan, and Tenet. I'm going to hit him with Tenet, even though I haven't seen it. But that seems, I mean, based on Christopher Nolan stuff, like Interstellar and Inception, a man does go hard with the visual effects. So, what about I'm you? gonna I'm gonna agree with you on Tenet. It seems very likely that that will win best visual effects. Just based on, I've seen the visual effects for a lot of these other movies. They don't, they aren't outstanding compared to Tenet's visual effects, which are outstanding. So I'm gonna go with Tenet. Final answer. All right, we will see. Best documentary short subject. Again, I haven't been able to catch any of these but vegas odds has a love song for latasha as the expected victor have you been able to catch any of them i don't typically watch the best documentary short subjects ever and i have not seen any of these but i do see a love song for latasha everywhere i go everywhere i look on oscar betting oscar odds everywhere i go i see this very highly promoted so if i had to guess having seen none of these I would guess a love song for Latasha. Yeah, it seems like it has the biggest push for it. Mm-hmm. For best documentary feature. We have Collective, Crip Camp, The Mole Agent, My Octopus Teacher, and Time. Now, this now, one's based... interesting. Okay, go ahead. Because Vegas Odds, according to DraftKings, has My Octopus Teacher. But from what I think will happen and from what I've been seeing, I believe Time will win. I've been hearing that it's a much better film. A lot of people like it. It's about uh, a black man who's been imprisoned. He's going to be serving 60 years. And it's a documentarian and that man's wife and their struggles to try and prove his innocence and get him freed. So based on the timeliness of that documentary, how relevant it is, and how popular it is, I'm going to guess time, even though I have seen none of these documentaries. I see. Interesting. Yeah, I think based on the timeliness of that story, that's a good prediction. Mm-hmm. I'll go with the Vegas odds for My Octopus Teacher, and my reasoning is purely because the name My Octopus Teacher sounds incredible. I really want to... It's about a guy... It's solely about a documentarian who befriends an octopus. That's uh, amazing. <laughs> and just like snorkels with the octopus for like an hour and a half. That's incredible. And I really want to watch it. After on our list after best documentary feature is best production design. We have The Father, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Mank, News of the World, and Tenet. Vegas odds have Mank, and I happen to agree. I haven't seen Mank, but I've seen plenty of stills. The other the other big competitor against Mank is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I have seen. And based on the stills of Mank and what I've seen from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I would give it up to Mank. It also seems, based on Vegas odds, to be highly above anything else. So very, very likely that it'll be Mank. Right. I have seen Mank. 
and I would agree that the production design is incredible on it. Brings you to 1940s Hollywood, so I think it certainly is well deserved. It does seem, yeah, to be far and away the top contender for best production design. For best makeup and hairstyling, we have Emma, Hillbilly Elegy, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Mank, and Pinocchio. So what would you say for this, Dylan? Because Vegas Odds has Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which... I would agree with the Vegas Odds, 100%. Even just going... I haven't seen any of these movies except Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and I've seen stills of Glenn Close and Hillbilly Elegy, and I've seen stills of Pinocchio and Mank. I don't know anything about Emma, but I've seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I've seen what they did to Viola Davis. How they took <laughs> Viola Davis, who is a beautiful woman, and they, they made her into Ma Rainey who's very, very beautiful in her own way, beautiful in her own way. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> but it's very well done. I have also seen stills of the real Ma Rainey and she looks just like her. It's identical. Very right. well done. Yeah. I do remember. Yeah. That is a pretty significant transformation actually. Like the skill in making her look so mm-hmm. much like that real person. Definitely. I think puts it, as a well-deserved nomination, and I guess it probably will win. And I just remember there was a lot of hoopla about Hillbilly Elegy and the way they also transformed Glenn Close. Mank, Mm -hmm. I hope, doesn't win, because I feel like Gary Oldman gets the same transformation every single time. Maybe that's also because when he was playing Winston Churchill, I mean, he just looks the exact same whenever they do that to him. So, yeah, I would not be upset if Ma Rainey Black Bottom won. Mm Mm-hmm. Next is Best Film Editing, which is the people nominated are The Father, Nomadland, which is actually Chloe Zhao, who is the director, which is very interesting. We talked about that last week in our last show. Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Vegas, I'd say Sound of Metal. I say Trial of the Chicago 7. Oh, me too. Me Just because I don't agree with that choice. I don't think it is correct. I think Nomadland or Sound of Metal should probably win. I haven't seen Sound of Metal, but I've seen many clips, and I think it's edited very beautifully. But I, I know how the Academy votes. I know what they think. And they're going to pick the trial of Chicago 7. Yeah, I I don't think Nomadland should get it. I am quite adamant about that one. I mm. think it's interesting that Promising a Woman is up here. Because watching that, that wasn't one of the major takeaways was this film editing. So mm-hmm. it is good to see that get the nomination, though. Sound of Metal. I did watch that. And I'm trying to remember how I felt about the editing in that one. Mm-hmm. It's certainly, I think, less flashy than some of the editing choices that they make in Trial of Chicago 7, which is probably why that is in the nominees and probably is going to be the one to end up taking it. Um, so again, mm-hmm. I'll, pro- I'll go for Trial of Chicago 7, mostly because that's the editing that I remember the most. But again, that's because I think it was the most showy with its editing doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean it's the best with its editing. Agreed. We have best costume design. So we'll have Emma, Mank, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Mulan, and Pinocchio. So which would you say? Now, I've only seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, but I've seen stills from a lot of these movies. I think it will go to Mank. I think yeah. I'm going to go with Mank. It's either going to be Mank or Ma Rainey. Vegas says Ma Rainey. 
I'm going to think Mank. Just because so many people are talking about how wonderful Mank is as a technical feature, the production design, the cinematography, the costume design, the makeup and hairstyling and all this stuff. And I think it's going to win costume design just for that uh, notability on its own. So I'm going to say Mank. Interesting. For me, I'm surprised that Emma isn't one of the top contenders, usually just because period pieces like that, Mm -hmm. like Victorian era, whatever, tend to be the top contenders because they get to do those dresses and they typically make them from scratch and all that. I'm I'm surprised that that's not as talked about as things like Mank and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Mm-hmm. And I did watch Mank and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and I'm trying to wonder, trying to think back to which costume design felt more impactful to me. Mm-hmm. And I really can't remember anything from Mank, but I'm remembering like Chadwick Boseman's suit and mm-hmm. her outfit, Ma Rainey's outfit. Yeah, that Ma Rainey had on. Um, and so that stands out more to me which again is by no means an artistic mm-hmm. evaluation the fact that one lingers in my mind more than the other but based on that i'm gonna have to disagree with you and head with the vegas odds and say ma rainey's black bottom i will say though that according to vegas odds emma is second behind ma rainey oh so it is high up there vegas odd style now our next thing is the best original or best sound, we have nominated as Greyhound, Mank, News of the World, Soul, and Sound of Metal. And there's two things that I think are interesting. First, Ren Kleiss is nominated for Mank and Soul because he's a frequent collaborator with uh, David Fincher, and he's a frequent collaborator with the composers of both of those movies, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And another interesting thing is, this is the first year that they have combined the sound editing and sound design awards exactly. into just one best sound category, I which remember, I did not know until today. Yeah, I remember back in one of our early shows during the 2019 or 2020 where we talked about the difference between sound editing and sound mixing. Mm-hmm. Now they have done away with the need to distinguish the two. They've combined them into one category, best sound. And like you said, this is the first year that it will be just one award. So who do you think will get it? Will it be the film that has sound in its name? From what I know, yes. From what I know of sound design, one of the hardest things to simulate is silence, realistically silence. And I know a lot of Sound of Metal has to do with the way he perceives sound, the way he hears it as him being deaf, and then the way he hears it not being deaf and how he plays the music and whatnot, the feeling of that. So I think it's going to go to Sound of Metal for that, of how much it focuses on the sound. I 100% agree. Again, the film really foregrounds sound, and it puts you in the mindset of the character through the way it showcases sound and his relationship to his hearing at any given moment. So it would make a lot of sense for this to win. It would be well-deserved. So yes, Sound of Metal will certainly win Best Sound. As for Mm -hmm. Best Original Score... We have The Five Bloods, Mank, Minari, News of the World, and Soul. Vegas odds say Soul, and I agree, though I don't believe that it deserves it as much as Minari. I think Minari stands taller than Soul as a score, as everything that it could possibly be, but I am 
100%, I'm 99% confident that Soul will win this award. I also agree that when we were watching Minari in preparation for last week's show, I was taken by the score. I was like, this is incredible. I hope it got nominated. And so I'm excited that it has, in fact, been nominated. And I would not be mad if it won, because Soul has been winning, I think, all the original scores. And I also think that's well-deserved. Again, this is another movie that is prided on and based around music. So it makes sense that something so central to the film is rewarded here uh, Mm -hmm. and recognized. So, yeah, it also makes a lot of sense that Soul would be the winner. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it's well-deserved. It's a great score as well. I'm not sure I love the Minari one as much as you to put it over Soul. but I loved it. (laughs) Certainly, if either of those two won, it'd be incredible. But then also, just to point out, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross nominated twice in this category mm-hmm. for both Mank and Soul. And with Soul, they also have John Batiste up there. So good odds for them to win, and yeah. it's likely that they will. Next is the best original song. We have Fight For You from Judas and the Black Messiah, Hear My Voice from The Trial of Chicago 7, Husevic from Eurovision Song Contest, EOC, EOC, scene, EOC, from the life ahead, and speak now from one night in Miami. Uh, I have not heard any of these <laughs> songs you know except why? except for the Eurovision one. Why? Because none of them were in the actual movie. I don't know yeah. about scene for the life ahead. That may have been. Haven't seen that film, but in I don't think the fight for you hear my voice, speak now. I don't think any of those were present in the actual film. I think they were the credits. Yeah. They just played them over the credits, which kind of feels like it shouldn't be allowed. That seems like a loophole to just put it on the credits and not have it be an important part of the actual film. I mean, it happens all the time. That's what happened with uh, Return of the King. They won Best Song because they wrote a song and put it over the credits. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. That seems doesn't seem like it should be the case. But yeah. it seems like Vegas Odds has Speak Now. From mm-hmm. One Night Miami, but out of principle, for it should be central to the film and meaningful in some way. I guess if it establishes the mood afterwards, like it's helping to leave you with whatever feeling they want you to take out of the film, mm-hmm. maybe that can make sense. But yeah, I don't remember any of those other songs when I watched the credits. So Husevic is the one I'm stubbornly going for. It's not that's what win, I. That's the, it's not. It won't win, but that's the one I want to win. I listen <laughs> to it. Have you listened to it? I have. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, yes. It is completely beautiful. But I think Speak Now will definitely win. Yeah, it's, I mean, Leslie Odom Jr., so. But Deserved. We'll I mean, he's great. He's incredible. So, yeah. I can't be mad about that, but it would be hilarious and amazing if Eurovision Song Contest became an Oscar-winning film. Mm-hmm. Up next is Best Original Screenplay, Judas and the Black Messiah, screenplay by Will Burson, Shaka King, story by Will Burson, Shaka King, Kenny Lucas, and Keith Lucas, Minari by Lee Isaac Chung, Promising Young Woman by Emerald Fennel, Sound of Metal screenplay by Darius Martyr, Abraham Martyr, story by Darius Martyr and Derek C. in France, Chi in France, I never knew how to say his name, and The Trial of Chicago 7 by Aaron Sorkin, Odds Say, Promising Young Woman, and I agree. I think this is what I, should win, and I'm going to manifest it. I'm going to think <laughs> about it, and I'm going to manifest that it will happen. I also agree that it should win. We talked about it a lot during our review, but it's just a lot of solid writing. I mean, the way that it captivates you, 
and it makes you truly believe in that relationship between Cassie and Bo Burnham, mm-hmm. and then you get sucker punched with the reveal. I mean, it's masterful in the way that it is able to string you along and make you feel exactly what it wants you to feel. And a lot of the power of that is in the writing and the choices mm-hmm. that Emerald Fennel made there. So I would love to see it win for Best Original Screenplay. Of course. We have Best Adapted Screenplay. We have Borat Subsequent Movie Film, Screenplay by a whole lot of people. We have The Father <laughs> with Christopher Hampton and Florian Zeller, Nomadland with Chloe Zhao, One Night in Miami, Kemp Powers, who adapted his own play. What a boss. The White Tiger with Ramin Bahraini. So it's interesting because Vegas odds, and it seems like most people are expecting Nomadland to win Best Adapted, which mm-hmm. I do not agree with. What do you think? I think Nomadland will win, but I have read some people that are think I think it'll be Borat. Some <laughs> people think Borat will win, which I, I wouldn't be totally upset. I think it'd be interesting. Who do you think will win? It would be an interesting. So... To clarify, personally, I disagree with the best adapted being Nomadland. I do think mm-hmm. it will win. I mean, it just seems like that's what everyone's been doing. I would really like if One Night in Miami won. Really? Because we haven't done the review for it. But for whatever reason, I mean, it didn't get nominated for Best Picture. But I really enjoyed One Night in Miami. That's probably based on the way that it is entirely just a movie about these very interesting iconic figures sparring with each other about ideas and employing a bunch of rhetorical techniques and all that so it felt really sorkin-esque and it was also timely and i loved a lot of the actors in it and i feel like the screenplay was really strong i mean it's adapted from a play so all it is is just people talking and regina king director of it did a lot of good work in making it visual but the whole thing was based around Mm -hmm. the writing and what the actors could do with that so i would really love to see that win i think it certainly deserves it um and nomadland it, it seems so like all the strengths of the film that i would attribute to nomadland writing is very low on that list i feel like really um i think of the five nominated here i think nomadland was written the best of course saying i've never seen the father of the white tiger but of the ones i have seen the three i did see Nomadland, I think, was the best, and I think deserves it the most, even though I understand your complaint, how it's not really adapted as much as it could have been from the source material. Right. And it is more of an original screenplay than an adapted screenplay. I understand that complaint, but I still think it was written the best overall as a movie, so I'm going to fight. It's even Nomadland. that, and it's also just, I'm curious as to how much of it was improvisation like how much of the authentic like the real people that were portraying themselves in the film Mm -hmm. how much of it was penned by chloe Zhao, what they were saying and how much was things they were bringing in from either things they said in the past interviews they've given in the past things they just wanted to say on the fly there so i don't know that's why partially i'm like i don't know a lot of the strength of the dialogue may have not been things chloe Zhao herself specifically written and it's not to say it isn't things she did do or the things that were presented in the film weren't good. They certainly mm-hmm. were. I'm just wondering, yeah, if most of that comes from Chloe Zhao, whereas something like Kim Powers, the strength of it is him inhabiting these four different iconic famous people that we all know, you utilizing their voices and then 
clashing them together. I don't know. I just like that film better, I think. But yeah, interesting category we have here. And I do think Nomadland will win, but mm-hmm. I'm holding out for a small chance that One Night in Miami will win. Our next category is the best animated feature film, Onward from Pixar, Over the Moon from Netflix, a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon from Netflix, <laughs> Soul from Pixar, and Wolfwalkers from Apple TV Plus slash GKids. Soul. Soul's going to win. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's it's Pixar, and there's nothing not Pixar that isn't standing out, or that right. is standing out. Like, the, the last time I saw a Pixar movie and thought and knew it was going to lose was when I watched Toy Story 4, and I knew that Spider-Man into Spider-Verse was going to win, you know? Never has there been another time where I thought... What? Were they in the same year? I don't think they were. That was Toy Story 4, wasn't it? It was Toy up Story against... For one. It beat Incredibles 2, I think. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, Toy Story That's what I meant. in 2019, and it did win Best Picture. For, yeah, in the 2020 Oscars, right? Okay, I you're right. I think you're so right. Long. I think you're right. But yes. It, but that, was, that was the only time in the last, like, 20 years where I thought, oh, Pixar is going to lose this one. I don't think Pixar is going to lose this one. I don't see any of the other ones standing out. The closest that I can see beating Soul is Wolfwalkers. I hear it's incredible. I want to watch it. I think it, it sounds really cool. But I still think Soul is probably going to clean up. I 100% agree. It's a safe bet to go with Soul and with Pixar. So, yeah. For Best Actress in a Supporting Role, we have Maria Bakalova for Borat. We have Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy. Olivia Coleman for The Father. Amanda Seyfried for Mank. And Yu Jung Yoon for Minari. Now... This category and the Best Actress category are the two that have been wild cards a lot this season, but Vegas odds say Yu Jung Yoon, who I think deserves it the most, I think should win. Uh, I could see it going to Amanda Seyfried or Olivia Coleman as well. I don't see it going to Glenn Close or Maria Bakalova. I think it'll be Olivia Coleman, Amanda Seyfried, or Yu Jung Yoon. And I'm going to say Yu Jung Yoon because that's who I want to win. And I'm going to manifest it. <laughs> I'm going to make it happen with my thoughts. What yeah, about you? This is an interesting one because Olivia, Olivia Coleman is absolutely beloved by every person who votes in award shows because mm-hmm. she wins so often and deservedly so a lot of the time. Of course. But it's interesting to see anytime she's in a film, she gets nominated. So she, the power of how loved she is may come through for her here. I don't think it will. Glenn Close, it's interesting because a couple years back, she was nominated for a role and we thought she was going to win because I didn't think she was going to win. I knew Olivia Coleman would beat her. (laughs) You can go back and you can look at our predictions because we recorded that. I said it would be Olivia Coleman and I was right. Interesting. So, well, Vegas odds back then, I think had Glenn Close and now in a supporting role, it doesn't seem like she's going to get awarded because it also felt like Oscar bait. Mm -hmm. So don't think she'll get recognized either. Didn't Baklova win for, Golden Globes? Didn't she win that one? No, that was... Or she won something else. It was she won something else. Choice, I think. Yeah, but she didn't win Golden Globes. That was um, Jodie Foster for the Martin, right, who isn't even, even nominated. nominated here. <laughs> very interesting. And Amanda Seyfried, in the very beginning, she was the front runner. Yeah. She's sort of fallen off since then. Vegas odds put her in last. <laughs> right, yeah. So don't think she'll get it either. Yu Jung Yoon, it's interesting because she sort of got this push late in the game because she wasn't nominated for 
Golden Globes, although I think Minari overall was kind of shunned at Golden Globes. And she definitely had a great performance. She was amazing to watch. She's also one of those people mm-hmm. that just charismatic on screen. Yeah. Anytime they're there, mesmerized. So it'd be really awesome to see her win. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that they do actually give her the win because she deserves it. Mm. Next, best actor in a supporting role. Sasha Baron Cohen for The Trial of Chicago 7. Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami. Paul Racy for Sound of Metal. And Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black Messiah. And it's definitely going to be Daniel Kaluuya. Yes. I can see no other way. That's what Vegas odds say. Vegas odds give him such a lead. He has He's far above anyone else. Like, second place is Sasha Baron Cohen. Like, he's so far <laughs> over everybody else. It has to be Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah, he's won, I think, every award there is under the sun. Yeah. So, he's got to win this one. We have Best Cinematography, Judas and the Black Messiah, Sean Bobbitt. Mank, Eric, Mercer Schwitz, News Mercer of the Schmidt. World, Schmidt. Mercer Schmidt? <laughs> yes. Schmitty, Werber, Jangin. Glad he got into the filmmaking scene. Uh, News of the World, Darius Walski, Nomadland, Joshua James Richards, and Trial of the Chicago 7, Fidon, Papa Michael. It's a great name. I think he just became my front runner for that. <laughs> um, so yeah, interesting category here. Vegas Odds has Nomadland, which when I was talking about the things that I would attribute to Nomadland as being amazing and working in its favor to make it such a great film, mm-hmm. cinematography is definitely up there. But I'm interested in seeing that Mank isn't the Vegas. Is it number two, Mank? For cinematography, it is... I gotta go scroll down. Mank a second, yes. Yeah. And it is relatively close. Yeah, because I was anticipating that Mank, because, I mean, it just looks so beautiful, and the black and white mm-hmm. helps that as well. I think it just looks so crisp. Every, like, you could take any single frame from there, and it looks fantastic. But you can also mm-hmm. do that for Nomadland. Of and it course. also, they both have story-based reasons for the cinematography style they go with. Nomadland, it has that authenticity of a documentary and it's just gorgeous shots through both of those films so it's so close i don't know which one i would want to win more and which one i think would win more but it seems like no man has such mm-hmm. backing behind it that it seems almost inevitable now that it would win yeah so i think yeah i'm gonna go with no Land. So many people have just fallen in love with Nomadland as an idea and as a story and as a film in general. So I'm just going to go with Nomadland just because of the notoriety it has at this point as being the beautiful film of the year. Right. For best actor in a lead role, we have Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Gary Oldman for Mank, and Stephen Yun for Minari. So this one is very obviously going to go to Chadwick Boseman. Mm-hmm. he's been certainly cleaning up every award show there is i guess except baftas they just gave it to anthony yeah. hopkins didn't they i don't know so why. i guess they, they love anthony hopkins over over there yeah he is Britain. a fellow brit so it'd be one of the biggest shockers i think ever if anthony hopkins happened to win he is in second yes but there is quite a difference yeah i haven't seen the father or anything like that but again chadwick boseman did give the best performance of his career. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Anthony Hopkins and the father also like did the best of his career, and that's above Bozeman. I have no clue, but it seems like based on 
his passing, the mm-hmm. circumstances of the film and everything around it, it just there's it seems highly unlikely that anything other than Bozeman winning would happen. So yeah, gotta go with Bozeman. I'm gonna go with Bozeman. He deserves it. Uh it was one of the, the best performances of the year, if not the best performance of the year. It was definitely up there. I think in terms of his fellow nominees, the only one that might be able to compete with him on my standards would be Steven Ewan and maybe Riz Ahmed. I haven't seen Sound of Metal, but from what I have seen, he's incredible in it. So I'm going to give it up to Bozeman just because I loved him in the film. I think he's fantastic. I think he's earned this. Best actress in a leading role. This is also just like the best actress in supporting role. This has kind of been out there with who's won and it's a nail who's been nominated. Yeah. Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Andre Day for The United States versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand for Nomadland, and Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. I remember watching Nomadland and thinking, well, there you go. Frances McDormand is going to win another Oscar. And that was the first movie I saw of, of the nominees, and I watched more and more, and I was like, oh, this is a real competition. It could go to any one of these people. They all gave such fantastic performances. Vegas odds say Carrie Mulligan. Of the five nominated, I want Carrie Mulligan to win, but I think it might go to Frances McDormand. But I'm gonna I'm gonna manifest Carrie Mulligan just like <laughs> the other things, and so I'm gonna predict Carrie Mulligan. Yeah, I will join you in manifesting that because she absolutely I feel like deserves to win. It was so engaging her, and again, even when I was like, this is not a sympathetic character. The first time I was viewing it, I was still. 100% ready to go the full film with her. Mm-hmm. She was just that interesting and intriguing. So I would love to see her win. And that's not to say, I mean, Viola Davis, I absolutely love her. Mm-hmm. She's incredible. Of course. In everything she does. She's the reason we watched How to Get Away with Murder. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal in that role. So it, it makes sense. But for that film, she's the titular character, but I don't think she's the main character in it, mm-hmm. which I think is a good choice for the story but yeah i feel like she wasn't the overarching force in that film to make me think that she deserves to get like the top recognition for it Mm -hmm. like again she was amazing in everything she did in that scene but there was just i don't know not enough i feel like to make me think that that should go to her francis francis mcdormand 100% 100% an Oscar-worthy performance. Mm-hmm. The authenticity she brings, she felt like such a real person in that. And I think a lot of what she did was putting a lot of herself in there. And again, a lot of the improvised scenes with the real nomads. So I would certainly understand her winning. Mm-hmm. But Viola Davis and McDormand, they both had Oscars before. They've been yes. recognized for their incredible talent. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see us spread the love some more and give Carrie Mulligan of an course. Oscar because it's certainly a deserved role here. Please let her win. Please <laughs> manifest it. Best director, we have Thomas Vinterberg for Another Round, David Fincher for Mank, Lee Isaac Chung for Minari, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland, and Emerald Fennel for Promising Young Woman. Chloe Zhao will win this. Chloe Zhao deserves this. <laughs> Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao. Any other, any other thoughts on that? No, I just like to add Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao. Thank you. Best picture, the 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 big award itself. We have only eight nominees this year: The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, 
and Sound of Metal and Trial of Chicago 7. It very much seems like Nomadland will also win that, which Francis McDormand is also nominated for as a producer. So Francis McDormand might Look, not be leaving home empty handed no matter what. Yeah. Yeah, there she there she goes. Yeah. So I think it's interesting here because, again, I would have liked to see. I don't know why they chose to do the eight. Personally, I like them being able to go up to 10 and choosing mm-hmm. to not do that if they want to. But now they've updated their requirements to there will be 10. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why they didn't also make it 10 this round because we could have don't think... Black Bottom and One Night in Miami up here. And they've yeah. been getting nominations in other categories. It would make sense. So I don't know why they chose to do just the eight for this one. They might not have gotten enough votes. Like, that's potentially possible. Maybe, if, but they could have just moved down the, like, threshold. If that's what they're going to do. That's not the rules, Ryan. That's breaking well, it's the, be rules. the rules. Two years from now. They could just update it now. It's not like, the rules now. Share the love. But anyway, as for who's winning, yeah, it definitely seems like Nomadland is the favorite this year. But if you remember, mm-hmm. the industry favorite last mm-hmm. year was 1970. Yes. And who won? Parasite. Parasite. Well deserved. This year, it seems like there's not going to be any surprise spoiler besides maybe Minari because that's been getting a lot of traction lately. Yeah, they are very close. So it's possible that they may pull a Moonlight and surprise La La Land or a Parasite and surprise 1917. Would definitely be surprising, but also well deserved because that's also a fantastic film. And I don't know, personally, I think Promising Young Woman, because that's, I think, my favorite of all of these. Yeah, that is my favorite as well. Um, So I would love to see that, but it doesn't seem like mm-hmm. that's going to get it. So, yeah, I guess I'll predict Nomadland. Mm-hmm. But I do think there is a possibility for Minari, Minari. potentially to come through and steal it. Mm-hmm. I mean, not steal it, but just to shock the world. Um, but yeah, it does seem like it is a foregone conclusion at this moment that No Man Land will clean up at this Oscars. And that is our prediction. Any final word? I don't think I would be upset at any of these. Every year there's a, a Best Picture nominee that I, I would be upset if it won, like Green Book winning. <laughs> and this year, this year, the only... I, I can't believe you predicted that correctly. You you manifested that with your evil prediction. I didn't want to manifest it, but I was like, "This is other people are manifesting it, so it's going to happen." the The only one on here that I think I might be upset if it won is probably Trial of the Chicago Seven, just because I know it doesn't deserve it compared to all these other movies. Nah. But if any of the other ones won, I'd probably be satisfied. I'd probably be happy. Like these are all fantastic movies, except for maybe Trial of Chicago Seven. I disagree with your assessment of Trial of Chicago Seven being non deserving. I certainly think it is. It's definitely weak. Like, I mean, we talked about in our Sorkin episode, mm-hmm. weak in some respects, but it also, I mean, I don't know. It's just so the writing of it is strong. I think the premise and the timeliness of it is probably what has carried it so far. I mean, it's star studded cast, good performances, solid writing from Sorkin, if not his best. And again, a relevant uh, theme. I'm sorry, did you say his best? I said solid writing from Sorkin if not his best, which I guess, yes, that is a weird phrasing. It is not it's his not best. his best. Okay. I'm saying it may not be his best, but it is solid writing. Mm-hmm. Just to clarify that. Because um, West Wing is his best. So that I still think would deserve it. But it's interesting because I think way earlier in the season, we may have thought Travis Chicago 7 would be 
higher on the list. I don't know where it's at on Vegas odds, but I do I think, think it's now at the bottom. It's, yeah, very low. There's always one. Film no, it's not I, at the bottom. It's second. Second? Oh, geez. Yeah. What the father is at the bottom, which also makes sense. You better hope other people aren't manifesting Travis Chicago 7. This would be, I will concede to you, this would be the green book of this year. Not necessarily for like the quality of the film and it being. It's definitely better movie. than Green Book. I yes. would say it's better than Green Book. But it's that sort of safe film that's commenting on like race mm-hmm. relations and things like that, but from it, yeah, it fits that the job. angle of yeah, the white perspective. So in that sense, it does have similarities to it, but I don't think it's going to actually win this time. There's always one film that I'm unable to catch during the Oscar season. Mm-hmm. This time it was The Father. Seems... Like a great film, at least again for Olivia Coleman and Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. But yeah, unfortunately, haven't caught it. So don't know. Does still seem deserving. So yeah, like you said, it's a pretty good collection, I think, here. Yeah. And it a good year for a Nomadland. pandemic year. Yeah. Nomad Land will be the victor, it seems like. Yep. And last but not least, we have our movie of the week, which is Mad Max Fury Road from 2015. It's directed by George Miller. It stars Charlize Theron, Tom Hardy, Nicholas Holt, Zoe Kravitz, and Hugh Case Byrne. It is written by George Miller, Brandon McCarthy, and Nick Lathurus. And it was edited by Miller's wife, Margaret Sixel, which is an interesting story. She actually ended up winning the Academy Award for editing. Uh, George Miller approached his wife and asked her to do the editing, even though she doesn't typically do action movies, because he said if he gave it to a man, it would just end up looking like any other action movie, and he wanted it to look special, which it absolutely does. It is a breathtaking film. It has great action. It has very, very, very unique style, and that's that's probably one of the things I treasure the most when it comes to a movie is the stylism of it. And that's probably why I love Promising Young Woman so much is because it is so stylistic and so is Mad Max Fury Road. And it is a great movie to bring up now because of the news that we mentioned earlier of the new Mad Max Furiosa prequel called Mad Max Furiosa is being filmed in Australia very soon. Chris Hemsworth, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, and Anya Taylor-Joy as Furiosa herself. It is also directed by George Miller. I'm very excited because I love, love, love Mad Max Fury Road. It was a huge success when it came out. It is a huge success in my heart. And I am very much looking forward to Mad Max for Yosa. So if you get a chance, go watch Mad Max for your road and stick around for more news about Mad Max for Yosa. As what would be your rating of Mad Max for Yosa? Because I 100% agree it is one of the best action films period ever because it is so stylistic, the incredible mm-hmm. direction and editing. But what would you get out of five? Five stars. 100% five stars. Me too. Five I go all out. Out of five. Yeah. Because that it's, was... It's, it blows fantastic. my mind. My little 15-year-old self in the theaters watching that, I was blown away. I wish I got to see it in theaters. I never want... <gasps> you never got to see it? Biggest disappointment in my life. One day they'll show it in theaters again just to like make more money. Because it is. it would be a successful movie to show again, and I'll go then. Okay. And one final thing. A little fun fact. Hugh Keys Byron? What was his name? Burn? Burn. 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 He's the... Immortan Joe, is that the guy's name? Yep, the, the, the antagonist. main antagonist. He's also the antagonist in the first Mad Max, mm-hmm. which is incredible. My dad, because we, I went to go see it with my dad, and he was like, you know that was the same guy from the first Mad Max. I was like, no way. And we went home and watched the first Mad Max, which is significantly slower. Yes. Far different movie from Fury Road. Not very stylistic. Change 
in tone and, and everything really oh yeah but yeah seeing that was hilarious what a circular i mean what a way to come back poetic mm-hmm. started in mad max came back in fury road well, that's all the time we have. If you would like to give your thoughts on the show or make a suggestion for the movie of the week, you can email us at theboxoffishow at gmail.com, and we will be posting our full list of predictions for the Oscars for this Sunday on our Instagram, so you can check that out. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. Be sure to tune in next week. We're going to be doing a recap of the Oscars, so make sure you watch the Oscars this Sunday. Uh, we're going to go over all the winners. Talk about our disappointments, our happy faces, our smiley faces, our sad faces, our angry faces. Have a great rest of your day.